I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. In this episode, I speak with Harriet Cross. Harriet is the British High Commissioner to Trinidad and Tobago. She's had a fascinating career in diplomacy with postings in the US, Yemen at a particularly challenging period, in Morocco and the UN. She's also worked on trade policy and human rights, international cooperation on crime, and had a stint in academia. What fascinates me about Harriet is her authenticity, and by that I mean her ability to stay as true to her values as she can while still representing her government. She shares her lessons learned on the role of diplomacy and on leadership. Harriet's zest for life is contagious, and I hope some of it reaches you as you listen to our conversation. Hello. Hi, Harriet. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Fabulous. Really, really glad that we can uh, connect today. Yeah. So it's Monday morning with you, right? Yes, it's Monday morning. (laughs) It's so funny because... We're in kind of two completely different modes because I'm Sunday evening, you know, (laughs) I just had a shower. I'm just having a nice cup of peppermint tea. I'm kind of (laughs) not quite, not definitely not ready for Monday morning yet. And you are slap bang in the middle of it. Yes, (laughs) indeed. So you're my my first Monday morning meeting, so to to speak. Uh (laughs) Right. (laughs) So um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm ready whenever you are, actually. Okay, I am ready. As I say, I've got my cup of tea. And as a British person, as long as I've got a cup of tea, I am ready for anything, ready to face the world. <laughs> that, that, that's great. Um, so you're the, um, the UK's High Commissioner to uh, Trinidad and Tobago. And I, as I was uh, re- reflecting on uh, our conversation, I was like having almost romantic images of diplomacy come to mind. I'm like, I was trying to figure out what a, uh, a normal day in, in your life would look like. And it, it seemed to me it would be one of the few postings in the world where you have the glamour of diplomacy with very few of the <laughs> challenges and the headaches. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure I have a very much romanticized view of it. <laughs> and... Uh, Maybe since you're, you're, I, I mean, our, our listeners can't see that, but I, I see a very relaxed version of you with your, your cup of tea. <laughs> um, clearly, not very much stress on your, on your face. Maybe that's a good place we, we could, uh, we could start. Actually, is to, to if, if, if you could give us a kind of a, a, a flavor of what's waiting for you on Monday morning and what does a typical day look like. Yeah, and I think that is one of the things I love about my job, that the life of a diplomat is really varied. I mean, from day to day um, and hour to hour in a way. Um, And actually, this weekend was a really interesting, um, strange uh, sort of clash of of the different things that a diplomat does. So on Friday evening, um, we had a kickoff event for the World Cup. Now, this was organised by the Trinidad and Tobago government. Um, and so it was their event, but but we'd been asked to set up a stall to promote England and Wales. So I decided to go along to that event wearing jeans and an England football shirt. 
um, and we got like a British telephone box. We brought in, literally brought in some goalposts and some fo- England footballs. Um, and, uh, you know, you've probably heard this term soft power. So that mm-hmm. was a really good example of British um, soft power. I had WhatsApp the foreign minister uh, the day before and said, would you be willing to try and score a goal against me if I stand in goal <laughs> and you try and, uh, do, you know, try and try and score? Um, and he said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So um, we, we set this up. We, di- we didn't say, you know, oh, we want cameras there or anything, but there were people filming stuff all the time. Um, and so seeing the, the foreign minister in these really sharp suits um, so, sort of trying to score a goal between my legs and I was in my jeans and trainers and T-shirt. Well, the next morning it was on the front page of the newspaper. Um, and that, I, you know, that's just like my, my work here is done for, for this weekend, you know, because that was that was a perfect example of British soft power because there were there were better football teams, some might argue, at that event. There was the Brazilians, the Argentines, the Germans. You know, the Spanish were there, um, but it's the Brits who get on the front page. And that is partly because I know it sounds, it is, you know, uh, it was partly because of the way I approached that event. Um, so there's one example of a day in the life of a diplomat standing in goal while the foreign minister shoots a football at you. Um, and then this weekend has also been Remembrance um, Day, yes. um, 11th of the 11th. Um, and so there was also a big formal Remembrance Day ceremony. Now, I went along to that in black with a red poppy looking really formal sort of black patent heels a black skirt sharp jacket um looking kind of business-like and kind of stern and kind of you know really serious because a yeah. lot of the um you know britain has been at the center of a lot of the wars that we are remembering when we when we um talk about remembrance day so that was a, another facet of the of the concept or the, the you know britain is more than just a country it's it's all sorts of imagery and um history and memory as well so sort of embodying that was a, a quite a different challenge um, and laying a wreath and again just meeting lots of different people the, the mayors of all the different places in trinidad and tobago um so that was um, a completely different event um and then tomorrow morning um, i know i've got quite a lot of work to do on um the pay rise that we'll be giving our local staff mm-hmm. and how that how that is distributed and how we are communicating that to our staff um uh, you know re- actually really difficult hr policy type right. of um type of work that i will that i will do tomorrow um so that's a little snapshot into the, the sorts of things that I might do um, and along the way um we'll be doing lobbying and talking about um the environment and and human rights I, pro- I probably do work on the environment and various human rights issues every day of the week pretty much one way or another and you you talk about British soft power but in the Caribbean there is also a, another layer which is the the legacy of of, of, of slavery or the empire and and um, whether um, um, the, the the king should, should still be head of state in a number of countries in the region, mm-hmm. how much is that coloring the the dynamics or the the the, the image of 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 of, um, of the UK in the, in uh, especially in in Trinidad? Is that something that's very present? Yeah, I would say that quite often the um, British colonial history is present in modern day conversations, whatever that conversation might be about. Um, It's not, not, not always. um, But I think it is something that we, that we, uh, that we have to move with as the, as the British government. Um, So I think for Trinidad and Tobago specifically, actually it's 
the, the, the question of whether the king should be head of state was, was resolved back in 1976. So it's actually not a present pressing issue at all for, um, for this country. Um, but Barbados obviously has just become a republic. Um, Jamaica looks set to um, want to become a republic as well um, in the coming years. So it's definitely a regional conversation. And it's actually something that I talk to my regional um, uh, equivalent. So the, the British ambassador in Barbados, the British high commissioner in, in Jamaica. Um, I talk to those people about it. And it's something that we have policy conversations about as well. Um, back in the summer, um, Prince Charles, as he was, made some really quite powerful statements about the legacy of slavery and the legacy of colonialism. And he said that the time for this conversation has come. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something that we will be hearing more about in the um, in the coming months and years, actually, and not, not least because this region does want to talk about it. Yeah. Are you able to share maybe some of your conversations with local um, local people from Trinidad about how how that comes up, how that comes up, or what 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 is the, the the context in which in which these discussions come come up? Is it is it about is it a reckoning with history? Is it about being acknowledged in in a different way? Or like, well, I mean, the, the honest answer to that is that the conversations that I have with people about Britain and its past in Trinidad and Tobago tend to be positive ones about the positive impact of the relationship so a lot a lot of people studied in the UK and and a lot of people have got family links into the UK Um, and so actually when I'm having one-on-one conversations it's very rare that I will talk about the colonial history in a particularly negative way and I think maybe that's partly because people are being polite with me and they just want to talk about the positive things Um, But I I actually do think that's quite interesting that nobody has sort of knocked on my door and formally asked me in my formal capacity to have a conversation about um, reparations or slavery or colonialism. Um, So I think that's that's somehow telling in in some ways in and of itself. Um, But um, Twitter is a good example of where, and again, people rarely directly engage me on the matter, but sometimes I will see sort of third hand somebody commenting on something that I've posted and saying, how dare the British High Commissioner say Mm. this? Look, look at this in the context of colonialism, for example. Um, So it's a kind of reflected conversation rather than a direct one. Right, right. I'd I'd love to ask you to kind of travel back in time and, and, and... If if you could um, share a bit of a p- picture of like your your childhood and where you grew up and kind of your 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 early steps in life and and and, and how how uh, some of the early kind of foundations were were set for for this this life of diplomacy that you that you ended up uh, em- embarking on. Uh, I have th- throughout the years I've. Um, I've had a, quite a few occasions to to engage with um, uh, ambassadors and high commissioners, uh, quite a few from the UK. And and um, y- usually I, I find myself um, trying to adopt the the poshest accent I can muster, and, <laughs> and usually my my, uh, my backbone straightens up, and there's a certain formalism that that uh, that kicks in automatically when I <laughs> when I have these conversations. Uh, but 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 with you, I struggle to do that, and there is a bit of a, a, a different energy that comes from from you. So I'm really curious to find out like 
what was it like growing up and, 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 and how did you end up where you ended up now? Let me first say that if I want to put on the mantle, the, the, invis- <laughs> the, mantle. the, the, the cloak of invisibility <laughs> of a very important high commissioner or ambassador, I can absolutely do it. And I can be terrifying <laughs> and imperious and arrogant should I choose to do that, just so you and the listeners know that. Um, but uh, most of the time, I actually pride myself on uh, not being that person. But sometimes I have to be that person. Um, so I would say, yes, it's true that if you look back at my childhood um, and actually right right up until the moment I joined the Foreign Office, I don't think it was, you know, the path was never set for me to become a diplomat. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was ever sort of written in the stars and actually was quite unusual. But And, and this is partly because um, I, I went to um, a kind of regular local primary school, regular local secondary school in um, a small town in East Yorkshire. Um, it, my, my dad and my mum had both come from, from very humble beginnings. Uh, my dad actually was born in uh, the slums of London mm. in 1940, and he was uh, one of these child evacuees, and he was sent to the north of England to escape from the bombing in London. And um, Cannon never came back because the, the people who sort of took him in from, from the Second World War didn't have children themselves. And so they adopted my dad. And his mum, I think, um, being a single mum of five boys, um, living in very reduced circumstances, thought he would have a better life if he was adopted um, by, by a fishmonger and his wife in the north of England. And so that's kind of my dad's background. My mum, my mum's family were... Uh, mill workers in near Bradford in, in the north of England but my mum and dad really instilled into me I think the power of education and that's partly that they had emerged from their um, sort of challenging backgrounds um, through through education they'd both gone to university but having been you know the first generation in their family to have gone and so I always I think I, I was always somebody who was kind of a good girl at school I enjoyed school I enjoyed learning things and so it was kind of a, a pleasure for me really to to be at school so that that was kind of easy for me in a way I didn't I didn't struggle with with exams or, or learning things um I, I I find it I'm somebody who finds exams and things relatively easy I'm disciplined with myself I you know I learn the stuff I put a nice spin on it you know I kind of <laughs> know how the system works uh, and so I came out of um I came out of school with um good good GCSEs good A levels and I went to Warwick University which is in the center of England and I did politics and French, which I guess that's you kind of that that's the first point when you say, well, that sounds like something that a diplomat might do. Um, but I just chose that because there were two things that I really enjoyed. And I uh, I worked in a pub um, all the way through my A-levels, all the way through university. And actually, if there was anything that taught me how to be a diplomat, it was working in a pub because you <laughs> wow. have to be you have to be. Uh, able to uh you know conflict resolution is absolutely critical to anybody who works in a in a bar you've got to understand finance you've got to understand negotiation um <laughs> you've got to have emotional intelligence you've got to know that person's about to drink too much or don't want to let that group of people get close to that group of people um so there's a whole lot going on with bar work um and actually i used that in my interview with the foreign office to say this is why you should recruit me because i've got all these skills that were gained being a, a bar worker um so i i think that's um but how, how did the idea come to you to, to actually pursue that um when you were i guess when you were at warwick you know it was very random i sort of wish i had a, a better story to tell in a way i mean i was 
in my, I guess maybe my third year at university, I was doing a four-year course and I was looking, well, gosh, what am I going to do when I finish? And my friend was was doing the, the civil service fast stream um, exam. And it kind of, it starts with like a thousand people do a multiple choice exam and then you just get whittled down and whittled down. And I said, oh, you're doing that thing next week. Oh, maybe I'll do it as well without really thinking anything more of it. And then I just kept getting through the different stages. And it was a sort of a surprise to me as it was to anybody else. Um, and I do think whenever people ask me, you know, how did you get into the foreign office? What's the secret? And I always say, I wrote, for me, I think it was 95% be yourself. You know, don't try and pretend to be somebody that you're not to get a job because it's it's rarely going to be successful. But don't be 100% yourself. <laughs> Take 5% and kind of channel that, you know, I am a person who's extremely successful and I am going to get this job and I am the best person for the job. Um, and so there's, there's always a little bit of artifice that I go that I think goes into any job application or any interview. And I think actually that bit of artifice is quite important because I don't think anybody wants the 100% you in the context of a, of, of a job application. Um, but I think because I didn't desperately want it, I allowed myself to just think they either want me as I am um, or they don't want me at all. I'm not going to try and fit into a mold of what I mm -hmm. think a diplomat mm -hmm. should be in order to get into the foreign office. And you, you you talked a bit about your your modest background and 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 um, bringing a lot of you in in the recruitment process with, without having um uh, without trying to fit um, to an idea of, of of what a diplomat would look like. Did you find yourself a little like the the, the odd one out in in the in 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 the once you, once you actually were admitted or, or was was the the diversity so to speak in the in the in the the, the, um, the entrance cohorts. Quite, quite, quite broad. Yeah, no, I did feel like the the the, uh, the odd one out for sure. I mean, for one thing, the the gender diversity was very imbalanced. I think I was, right. I think maybe our cohort was about maybe about fifteen of us or something like that got got right. in in this this particular intake in nineteen ninety seven, and I think there were two women in that intake. Right. Wow. Um, funnily enough, the other, the other woman was also called Harriet, uh, which is kind of really <laughs> okay. strange. But I almost felt like... Did you wonder if there was a mix-up or something? <laughs> <laughs> so I always, I did always feel um, like, gosh, these people are so different to me. Right. Um, and, to, and, and I still sometimes feel that now, but I feel it less. And I think that is partly because the Foreign Office has really tried to increase the diversity of its applicants. And that's gender, ethnicity and social background as well. Um, so I think still the people at the very top of the organization, yeah. um, as in many places, are people who have more privileged backgrounds who probably went to private school. I mean, I think this is all documented that a good 60, 70 yeah. percent um, yeah. of, of, of people do come from those backgrounds. Um, and so I do I, I do always feel a little bit different in the foreign office, I think. But um, as I say, uh, sometimes I, I'm really cheering on the younger generation because they've got they've got much more of that. Um, diversity in all sorts of different ways than than my intake ever had. Yeah, you mentioned in an earlier conversation that we that we had that you you uh, you spend a lot of effort as well trying to make government um, careers more accessible to 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 people from a wide wider range of backgrounds. And I'd love to hear a little bit about about that as as well. Yeah, and so there are there are a few there are a few different. Um, paths in in that in that whole piece of work on social mobility and one is about talking to individuals themselves and getting them not to discount themselves from roles that they think um, are not for them 
and and sometimes that starts way with your children at school secondary school saying this is a career that could be for you um and, and also it's not for you because you can mold yourself to fit in with the mold that, that this organization wants. It's that this organization wants people like you who are different to the people who are in that organization at the moment. So it's, it's creating that mindset with young people that they've got a right to be in those positions. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's a really important part of the puzzle. Um, but the other part is, is um, kind of much more a bit drier in a way because it's about data and it's about um ensuring that the HR systems in any organization, but in this instance, the foreign office, are recording people's social background and what their education levels were and how they are finding the economic crisis and all these things. Because if you don't have the data, it's very hard to understand if there are any problems or what the um, actually what that, that diversity looks like, partly because it's kind of a hidden um, piece of diversity um, that people often disguise their social background or don't talk about it so you don't really know well is this person um, somebody who is, who is coming in to change the organisation you don't know if you don't have the data um, so that's part of it as well um, and then thirdly I'd say it's, it's about talking to the senior leaders in the organisation to make sure that the decisions that they make don't adversely impact some of those yeah. people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Uh, and sometimes a good example is returning to work. So if you say, oh, actually, everybody's got to be back in the office now five days a week, how does, how does that impact people who don't have parents or family who live in London? And so they're, they're having to rent tiny little places quite far right. outside of London. It costs them a fortune to get in. Right. Sometimes that's just not taken into account. Um, and so those are those are some of the different strands of the social mobility work. Um, I've done some mentoring, which I've really enjoyed. So mm. I had a conversation with um, a young woman who was at university um, just just a couple of days back. And she was telling me that she I said, oh, so one of the things you want to get out of it. And she said, oh, I, I, I want to I want to do more kind of extracurricular stuff at university. And I said, so why aren't you doing that now? And she says, well, I get emails about it and I just delete the emails because I think that um, they wouldn't want me or I'm not the right person to be doing that thing on such and such well, a committee yeah. or whatever. And I, and I was quite astounded because you kind of forget the lack of self-confidence that right. some young True. people have. Um, and so I thought that was, you know, I thought, OK, we can work with this. This is this is good. This is actually quite a clear goal. And it just I don't know. It makes me sad that that people who've got so much to give kind of they're their own blockers sometimes. Yeah, and yeah, I think, yeah. but oh, that's all quite quite powerful because if you can get people to think differently and to build people's confidence, then they can then do. They've got the power then themselves. It's not that there's necessarily a glass ceiling that's stopping them, but it's this question of sometimes people are socialized into thinking, yeah, I'm yeah. not the right person for for that role. Yeah, this is like the, the imagination is curtailed because of pressure, social pressure, and, and uh, yeah, wow, yeah. fascinating. I'd I'd love to 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 ask you a bit about your 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 postings and your career in the uh, in, in diplomacy. You, you've uh, you've you've had postings in in um, quite a range of um, challenging places, um, Morocco, Yemen, um, at, at very difficult times. I'd love maybe to ask you to. If you could share a bit some of the events that that uh, that have really marked you, not just professionally, um, because of their 
their challenge, but also p- personally as a, as, a, as, a, as a leader? Okay, so let's see. Um, I mean, some of the things, <laughs> some of the things that spring to mind. Um, Yemen is is probably the posting that was that was most impactful on both me as a person, but also my um, kind of my place in a series of events that were that were happening that were, that were quite in, in, important um, regionally, I suppose. So that that was a posting. Did you did you? Did you volunteer for it, or did you? Was it was it something that was put on your path, or how, how did you end up there? If I can ask. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I did. Um, I did apply for the job. So I, I started working on Yemen um, because I had been outside of the Foreign Office. I took a career break and I worked at the University of York and I opened a microbrewery and I nope. did all this really <laughs> right. uh, non-diplomatic work for about two and a half years, and then. I actually, I thought I really want to get back into the foreign office. Um, and again, this is this is something that I learned from my about myself from that experience is that I kind of wanted to be somebody who was who had a bit more authority and a bit more power. And when you ring up from a university and say, "Hi, I'm calling from this university," people kind of say, "Oh, yeah, all right, okay, well, yeah, I might I might ring you back. I might get somebody to ring you back." And nobody really cares. <laughs> it's my experience, <laughs> at least the role that I was doing. And then you say, oh, "I'm ringing from the British High Commission, or I'm ringing from the Foreign Office." You know, people, you've got you've got a lot more clout. And and I don't necessarily say that. I'm not necessarily proud of that. I sort of wish I was somebody who didn't need these trappings of diplomacy and sort of power. But I did. But I did. Um, and so that was that was one lesson that I learned about myself. So I really want uh, I'd, the Foreign Office was holding open a place for me because it was like a career break. Um, and so I could I knew that I'd be able to come back. But working on the Yemen desk in London was kind of a bit of an open door because I knew that it wasn't necessarily a hugely popular job because it was a, yeah. a conflict zone and a, and a difficult place, not a, not a kind of sexy, glamorous yeah. you know, job, really. Um, but I thought, I just want to get back in. So I, I got back in doing that, doing that job. And I used to go out and cover the deputy ambassador job because, because it was such a difficult posting that person had a break every six weeks for two weeks. So we call right. it six weeks on, two weeks off. So Sounds I was going like in out the, to my Yemen. industry in oil and gas. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It was exactly like that. Um, so I would just sort of slot into the deputy ambassador role. And also it taught me that you to um, just have to hit the ground running. A whole new set of issues. Six weeks later, here's a whole new set of issues. Here's all the new personnel problems. And I would be either the person with authority for two weeks, but then again, everybody knew that I was leaving after two weeks' time. So you you imagine suddenly getting this sort of promotion every six weeks and having to do something <laughs> useful in those two weeks. Um, it was a really interesting um, sort of time, and I did that for about eighteen months. And then the job as the deputy high commissioner, uh, sorry, the deputy ambassador came up, um, and I'd really enjoyed my time that I'd spent out there, and it was you know fascinating country. That was that was at the time when. Um, there was a, what was called a national dialogue, which was um, sort of an attempt to create some stability in Yemen after the Arab Spring, where the previous sort of long term leader had, had been ousted and all the different factions were coming together to say, well, actually, I should be in control. I should be in control. And there was a UN process to get women at the table when, when we were talking about who would be in control in future, make sure human rights and democracy were at the front of, of any of the conversations. So that was all happening. And so I thought it was really interesting. So I applied for the job and I was interviewed and there were several other people who applied for the job as well. Um, and of course, I had an advantage because I'd been out and done that job for, for a few months at a time. So 
yeah, I, I was thrilled because it was a promotion as well. Um, and so I went out to Yemen in January 2015 uh, and things were really heating up at that point. It was getting even more violent and, and um, there were a lot of bombs going off. There was a lot of Al-Qaeda activity. There was a lot of activity from the Houthis in the north, who were sort of a tribal group, who were who were part of this national dialogue process, but who had kind of splintered into a political group, who were part of the negotiations and sitting around the table, and a, a Houthi group who were the sort of military-led force who were in the north and amassing weapons and, and this sort of thing, and so that was the that was the background to where I began my job, um, which was terrifying and thrilling at the same time um and I was you know I had a lot of doubts about whether I would be up to the role because it was as I say it was really really scary but I had this was one example in my life where I had uh, a senior person the person who was the ambassador a woman called Jane Marriott who was really supportive of me and who really wanted me to do well and you know, set me up to to do some really interesting work, but didn't sort of just dump the really difficult stuff on me. Um, and so that was a real, it was a learning process about how to be a good leader, for one thing. So that's something that I hope I've taken away from that. Um, but it was also, for me, learning about, I could be outside my comfort zone and still do a good job and still be really professional and other people didn't necessarily have to see how difficult I was finding it because I could manage that in my in my own time and then sort of take a deep breath and come into the room and feel like I was a person that other people could look to as being strong and reliable and in control because that's what people do want to look for in in crisis and if you are if you are there as the leader you have to be reassuring I always think it's a bit like it's a bit like public speaking or it's a bit like being an actor that the people sitting in the audience you know if you're if you're going to a a theatre going to see a play and somebody fluffs their lines or it just feels a little bit like the, the actors are not particularly comfortable you're not having you're not having a good time you're feeling on edge and you're feeling like you don't buy into it you don't have trust yeah. in the integrity of the piece and it, I felt it was a bit like that being a leader in a conflict zone because people want you to be in control and want you to be directive as well um, and that was the other thing I think from my Yemen experience that I I am a very collaborative person and I'm, I always want to get a group together and say, well, what do you think about this problem and how do you think we should approach it? And that's generally how I approach my work. Um, but there are occasions when a bomb's just gone off mm. and you do not have the luxury of inviting yeah. people in for a conversation. You have to say, that's what I'm going to do about it. And then you tell people what they need to do as a result of the decision that you've just made. And again, in those circumstances, people do what you tell them to do and that was also something that I'd never really experienced before in my job because I wasn't these this was literally life or death situations that we were dealing with Um, and so that was also a really powerful reminder of what I was capable of I suppose but also what what people were willing to to do for me as a leader um and it's, sometimes it's quite hard to have those experiences in everyday life, I would say. It's, it's really interesting because it, it shows how versatile you had to be from, from a, almost a natural way of working, which is collaborative, but also authentic, where you bring in even questions you may have. And then you had, you had to switch away from that to, uh, 
almost inauthentic or like displaying confidence when you didn't fully feel it and and shut down an instinct around collaborativeness finding the moment where you had to 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 do that and and you you were sharing with me that that the the crisis escalated to to a point where you you actually all had to evacuate right yeah we did Uh, and it was quite a slow paced evacuation which was also quite interesting quite unusual i think because Normally, my understanding is that, you know, something really bad happens and pretty much it's you have to leave pretty quickly. And partly because a slow paced evacuation is more dangerous because the <laughs> the bad guys, if they know you're leaving, might want to stop you leaving um, or might want to somehow just put, put a spoke in the wheels of that of that operation. So. Actually, it was more difficult to leave slowly. And we probably left over a period of, of probably a couple of weeks, I would say. Um, the sort of beauty of that was that we did this kind of slow motion. If you, if you imagine some of these war films that you've seen or, or espionage films where in an embassy they are smashing up computers and burning documents, that's what we were doing. But we were doing it over quite le- in a quite leisurely way because we knew we had time, um, basically because... Um, we'd been told you can't leave yet. You know, right. there are various reasons why you can't leave yet and we're not going to give you the authorization to leave yet. So it'll come later. Um, so we had we had some building work that, that had been happening, but we'd sent all the contractors home and we had this huge hole in the, uh, <laughs> in the compound. So we used that as this big fire pit and we were throwing in documents and we were throwing in fax machines do fax machines burn i don't know should we try let's see if a fax machine burns <laughs> because um we sort of had to the aim was to remove any documentation or evidence that if 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 we'd left the compound and then um the the rebel forces had come into the compound we didn't want them to say oh this family just got a load of british passports or 10 years ago um this the, this particular person applied for british citizenship because that could be really dangerous for these people so all the evidence you know even to the, to the extent of the wheels of the fax machine where you could maybe get information out of them had to be smashed and uh, it was it was fascinating so that was also something very new to me. We went through cupboards. I found passports from the 1920s that nobody wow. had ever picked up. Um, there was beautiful letters written in, you know, 1900 about um, dock workers who, had, who were going to work on a ship that was going to the UK. Really, at, like, historical documents we were uncovering. Mm. Um, and some of these I stuffed in my handbag because I thought, actually, I don't want to burn them. This is something that should go to a museum when I get home to the UK. Um, and there was money as well. That was the interesting thing because we always kept a lot of money in a place like Yemen because the banking system doesn't yeah, doesn't yeah, work that yeah. well. So I also had thousands of pounds in my handbag when I left Yemen uh, because we thought we might have to we might have to pay uh, to get through roadblocks um, or somebody might at the airport say, well, we'll only let you on the flight if you give us some money. So that was also bizarre. Um, and again, never had that experience before. Um, and it was really scary. I mean, we were t- the day that we left, we were told, you know, we were going in this in this bus. There were probably 12 of us left at that point, something like that. Um, but we were told, you know, maybe that we have to turn around because the checkpoints won't let us through to the airport. And, you know, we'll just have to cross that bridge when we come to it. But here are some fallback plans should that happen. Um, so it was quite scary. And I did think I might be detained and all the 
thoughts about what might happen if I was detained, all that sort of thing was running through my mind. Um, but I was, I was brave. Um, <laughs> and it was, it probably was the scariest thing that has, that has happened to me, I would say. Um, but being scared for myself, but also having the responsibility to look after other people is a, is a strange combination. Because I assume there was local staff who had to be left behind. Uh, as yes, well. there were. And that was awful because uh, we couldn't tell them we were leaving either, though I guess they suspected. Um, but we never actually said we're leaving on Thursday, guys. Um, yeah. We just said we've got to get rid of all this stuff just in case there's a problem. Um, and that was really, really difficult. Um, and I mean, they, they, they had roles and they continued to be paid because they were looking after the compound and um, some of them were working from home still. Um, but it was, uh, and it always is, I mean, throughout the world, you hear about diplomatic missions and, and how their relationship with their local staff is managed. And it's a really tricky conundrum because you work side by side with those people and you're, you're trying all the time to, to have a, a, a degree of equality to a certain extent and not to treat the UK staff differently to the local staff even though they're on different terms and conditions and actually nowadays in the British diplomatic service there are some quite senior local staff who are who are quite high up in terms of seniority and and they will they you know they are more senior to UK based staff but when something like a, a coup happens you take the British citizens out and you, mm, yeah. and you you don't remove the local staff at least not immediately i know sometimes there are slower paced um movements of local staff in places like iraq and it has happened with interpreters um but yeah that was a really difficult part of it absolutely mm. and, and you ended up in in uh, in saudi arabia uh following that evacuation i did and we went we went back to the uk initially yeah. um but the yemeni government left quite quickly after us um which again which just showed how um we did the right thing to leave because it we really we really was getting very close to collapse when we left. So the Yemeni government decided to go and re-establish themselves in Saudi Arabia. And we, you know, I did a whole project about should we go to Lebanon, should we go to Qatar, you know, where should we stay in London? Um, and we decided, you no, know, going to Saudi Arabia was was the best thing to do in terms of British policy towards Yemen because it would put us close to the Yemeni government uh, and close to the Saudis who were a, a major player in the conflict as well um, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't an easy or quick decision but that's that's where we went within probably about a month of having evacuated um, so that was a, a, a whole new experience and that's why I was in Saudi for about a year in the end well yeah and the the, the national dialogue and, and and the role of the international community is is one of the stories where unfortunately diplomacy didn't didn't prevent uh, the escalation of a conflict and i'd love to maybe hear your reflections on on um, events that you've been part of or initiatives that you've been part of where you've seen that that um, that diplomacy can 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 make a difference um, or any, any reflections on its place in in um, mitigating conflict or in, in in addressing some of these complex issues Yes, I mean, I did four years at the UK mission to the UN in New York, and I came away from that thinking that the UN does absolutely critical work around the world. Um, there are problems with the UN. I mean, I think partly 
um, sometimes people think of the UN as almost being an independent entity and like, why isn't the UN doing X, Y, or Z? <laughs> Whereas actually, you know, UN employees do what the members of the UN tell them to. So, you know, quite often on the Security Council with, with Russia and China on the Security Council, things do get blocked and things don't happen as swiftly or sometimes as, as effectively as some members of, of the Security Council or the, the, the UN body more generally want to happen um and so that's that's partly the frustration with the un but um i think the un does incredible work in changing values is one thing i think the un does really well so if you think about the death penalty um think about children children in armed conflict i think is a really good example where the UN has has firstly said as a value, surely, surely we all agree that children shouldn't be in conflict. Um, and then and then physically on the ground, trying to make that value a reality, um, I think is a, is, a, is a good example. And, um, you know, UN peacekeepers haven't been successful all around the world. Um, you know, we can we can think of many examples where that where that hasn't worked. Um, but there are more examples, I would say, of where the UN has prevented conflict escalating. And sometimes that's quite hard to assess because it's, it's quite hard to, to prove something that hasn't happened. Um, but I see nations, I, I saw nations working together in the best interests of really vulnerable people um, and that is that is diplomacy at its best, um, you know. And we'll, we there the, the, there were occasions, and there still are occasions, when we will work with all sorts of different partners in all sorts of different configurations when uh, when interests align, and that can that can be really powerful. Um, so I, I I don't think diplomacy, you know, diplomacy is not dead because of where we are in this modern world with you know, the power of Twitter and the, uh, I mean, some, sometimes, det- well, quite clearly deteriorating relationship with Russia as <laughs> a, yeah. a good yeah. example of where, again, diplomacy is is struggling to achieve uh, what we might hope it, it to achieve. Um, but I'm still a great believer in the power of human beings talking to other human beings and making the world a better place. And... Um... Are there are there specific uh, instances or, or events that you remember where you felt that that you personally you 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 were you're, you're proud of what you were able to to achieve? I mean, regardless of what the uh, ultimate outcome was. You know, on the on the human rights front, um, I would probably go back to the death penalty as a good example of where I think the global dial is shifting. Uh, to, towards the death penalty being something that f- at least should only happen in the more severe circumstances. I mean, this is how I think the, those like-minded countries alongside with the, U- the, the UK and other partners decided to approach the death penalty because we weren't necessarily going to be successful if we said, you have to abolish the death penalty today. It's a bad thing. Um, we took the path of, can we stop putting children to death because of crimes they can have committed can we stop um light crimes being um subject to the death penalty 
Um, so um, can we stop um, murder being a compulsory death penalty yeah. sentence in, in different places? Um, not to mention homosexuality as, a, as, as, as another example of, of where, um, you know, the death penalty uh, is just egregious. Um, and so getting countries to agree that, OK, we're not going to abolish the death penalty, but we will not put anybody to death under the age of 18. I think it's quite it's quite hard to stomach for those of us who find the death penalty abhorrent in all its forms. Um, but I would argue that the more culturally and socially um, you can reduce the, the scope of the death penalty, the more successful you will be in future in getting people to agree that it should be abolished totally. So I think that yeah. that is happening. And I think I've played a role in that. I think it's it's slow, though. Um, but it's something that I continue to work on. I have conversations in Trinidad and Tobago about the death penalty because the death penalty is still on the statute books mm-hmm. here. Um, uh, and I think there are there are people dedicating their lives to abolishing the death penalty around the world and to saving individuals as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that that's something that I'm really proud of. Um, and I would also point, um, actually, again, the UN does, does work on this too, but um, LGBT plus rights and trying to make the world a better place um, for uh, LGBT people and communities. Um, and I feel like that's that's something that, again, the UN started to say, OK, we're going to take an interest in this and it's going to be something that, that those like-minded countries come together and do work together. Um, and the UK, I think, is a really leading voice in this. Sometimes in, in Trinidad and Tobago, I feel like some people think that, oh, there's the British High Commissioner banging on about gay rights again. It's, she's obviously got to be in her bonnet about it. And that's where you know, I put on my serious High Commissioner <laughs> voice and say, these are directions from my government that I'm talking to you about LGBT rights. Please don't think it's something that I'm just talking to you because I'm personally interested in it. You know, this, this is what the government has asked us to do around the world. And it's about education and, and, and human rights and girls' rights. And it's about you having a better economy, by the way, because if you've got more inclusive workplaces, you will, you will be harnessing the power of so many more of your incredible population than, than the people that you choose to exclude at the moment. Um, so I also think that that's something that, you know, there are pushbacks around the world, but overall, I think progress has been made on that on that dossier as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm 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 proud to be somebody who has who has clearly spoken up as a diplomat about that too. I find fascinating that that uh, um, people that you sp- speak to may may question whether you're you're advocating for issues that are important to you as a person or um, that you represent your government. And I imagine that there must be points where there's a bit of a tension or not not always a full alignment between w- what you are passionate about and 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 uh, what the um, the official view uh, is. In a previous call, we talked a bit about your your um, your passion for for the environment and and. And the, the fact that you're a, a vegan as well, it, it strikes me that that's um, um, maybe something that, that that is close to your heart. That that maybe let's call it more more um, progressive, if that's the right word, than 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 official positions in 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 governments today. I would say yes, it's definitely true. And again, when people ask me about being a diplomat. 
um, you know, oh, I'd like to be a diplomat. You know, how do I go about being a diplomat? And, you know, what do you think? Um, I do ask people to have a think about how they would feel implementing policy that they don't agree with. (laughs) Is that something that you could do? Because you will have to do it at some point Um, because you you serve, you know, actually it's, it's really interesting in the British system. I serve used to serve the queen now i serve the king formally that's that's what i do but but of course essentially it's the government of the day but you have to be neutral as a civil servant you know we can't join political parties um i do have to be careful about um things that i say online because i don't want if if i'm seen as taking a particular political bias then people might say well that's coloring the way that you do your job um so it when you're passionate about things having to be neutral can be tricky um and so yeah there have been times in my career when i've been really frustrated with the 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 policies that that i've had to implement but i've i've done them um because you have to ask yourself do you want to do this or do you want do you want to leave the the civil service that's the choice (laughs) no that that is the choice um uh and i think you know i'm not i i think staying inside the system and and rebelling against it in a in a destructive way is is not healthy for anybody but being in the system and saying how can i make sure we do more work on animal rights i mean here's here's a good example so i'm in trinidad and tobago one of my my country business plan um we've got a whole section on security and 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 crime so that includes illegal migration um and trafficking and these sorts of issues now tied up in trafficking and illegal migration is the illegal wildlife trade Um, because quite often if people are smuggle if if people are smuggling people they tend to be smuggling animals as well Um, because it make a bit of money let's bring some parrots over at the same time um uh, or they start smuggling animals and then progress on to smuggling people because they realize these are the routes this is how easy it is um and so uh, quite legitimately, as part of my role as somebody who deals with with I- I trafficking, I can have conversations about the illegal wildlife trade. Now, there'll be other ambassadors out there um, who won't make those connections and won't have the interest in doing something on environmental crimes, but it's perfectly legitimate for me to do so. And so that's when I can say to myself, I can make a difference to a bunch of parrots who are sitting somewhere in central South America at this point in time, who might in the future get smuggled to Trinidad. Um, but because of the work I've done, that might not happen. So um, that's that's when you're making change from the inside in a positive, constructive way. So that sort of gives me uh, gives me joy, and I f- I do feel like you know my activism is <laughs> being channeled in the right in the right directions. Um, and sometimes I'll just ignore things. That's the other thing when you are a leader and you can decide what your priorities are. So somebody will say to me, oh, yeah, we're doing this thing with this meat company. And I'll be like, I, OK, mm, moving mm, along. Mm. <laughs> you <Right. know? laughs> I, I will choose not to throw my weight right. behind how I can support this meat company. Right. That's just one decision I've taken in the day. Um, but another person might decide to say, actually, that's where I want to put my right. my diplomatic you're, you're, weight. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's how I approach that quite tricky question of personal interests and personal values. Yeah. And, and and it must have come up a number of times as well in your diplomatic career, like, oh, you're, you're not eating meat. Why? You're oh, you're a vegan. <laughs> it's like, there must be. I, I must imagine. I can imagine that pretty much all of your. Um, 
uh, diplomatic conversation must have uh, must have uh, had that topic come up actually <laughs> well yes you know there's that thing how do you know somebody's vegan they'll tell you um you do you do end up talking about veganism but i, I you know what i think i end up talking about veganism because as soon as people hear that i'm vegan because quite often i have to tell people because so do you have any dietary requirements before you come to this lunch or dinner or yeah well yeah, actually I do and so often I'll sit down to dinner formal dinner at some beautiful person's house and they'll have given me a nice vegan meal and we'll all you know but just about to tuck in and they're having their steak or whatever and they'll say so why are you vegan <laughs> right, that's think, what I was imagining <laughs> this is fascinating you know like really like what do you expect me to say? I think sometimes they expect me to say, oh, it's just because it's a bit more healthy and I want to lose weight, you know, some facile little answer like that. Well, actually, the reason I'm vegan is animal rights and animal yeah. suffering and the suffering of the slab of meat that's on your plate, you know, but I, I never initiate these conversations. Um, so it is fascinating as a vegan, actually, to find the number of times. As soon as you tell somebody you're vegan, they'll say, well, I don't eat much meat, you know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's almost like this, this little confessional that happens, true, yes, you know. That's true. And I only buy I only buy free range eggs. You know, I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, great, good for I you. Care. <laughs> so it is kind of interesting. But I tell you what's made it. I've, I've been vegan for um, gosh, 15 years now, probably. Mm. And I say it was it absolutely was animal rights the reason I turned vegan. But actually, I think nowadays because there's quite a lot of the animal agriculture conversation around environmentalism that I think people assume, actually, that I'm vegan for environmental reasons or possibly right. for health reasons. And it's actually normally animal rights are the kind of last thing people expect me to be vegan for. And again, I think that's partly because the assumptions people make about a diplomat and like, what, diplomats interested in animal rights? That seems really weird. So um, <laughs> that's the kind of stereotype you know, at play there, I would say. In, in, in a previous conversation, we talked a bit about uh, health, uh, and I, I, th I thought it would be, it would be good to, to, to touch on it yeah. uh, today. Um, there's, it's, it's hard for me to have any conversation at work uh, where the topic of mental health doesn't come up. Uh, and and it's, it's, it seems to have crowded out the topic of, 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 uh, of physical health, actually, and what it is and, and how to get around it. And uh, I, 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 I wanted to, to, to hear, to hear uh, a bit about um, your own challenges with um, physical health, especially uh, in a domain that 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 is uh, that is quite invisible, um, and uh, and share a bit have how you're uh, how you're grappling with that, and um, and uh, maybe maybe what lessons that we can all draw from uh, from from your from your struggle with it. So the background to this is that I was born with um, a congenital heart defect. So I, um, my kind of my, my heart um, was had various different problems with it when I was born. And so I had open heart surgery when I was six. Um, and then I kind of didn't really have any, any problems at all until I hit probably my, my 20s. And then I had to start having cardiology appointments and my heart wasn't functioning as well, actually partly as a result of the operation that I'd had when I was small. Um, and so and that's kind of built up a bit over the last few years. So I find myself as somebody who kind of has to manage a heart problem, both in terms of medical appointments and and my own um, acceptance of it, because I think yeah. when you've got a medical problem, however, that however, that has emerged, um, 
you kind of, I, I feel defective, that I feel like I have got a defective heart, you know, um, it's just not as good as other people's hearts. And so sort of coming to terms with that is one thing, but then also managing the physical impact or inconvenience, probably more in my, in my case, is, is also sort of frustrating. Um, so that's, that's the sort of background to, to your question. And actually, you started off by talking about um, mental health. And actually, I think that I, I think it's really powerful and a real breath of fresh air that <clears throat> in the last few years, we can talk much more openly about mental health and people with depression or, or other mental health problems feel a lot more at, at ease. Probably, probably, probably still a long way to go, but a lot more ease to talk about them. And it's less of a taboo than it ever was. Um, and I think in some ways that has given me more confidence to talk right. about my non-mental health problems, my physical right. problems in a way that isn't embarrassing or sort of awkward. Um, but it's just something, it's just a fact that that is part of my identity. And it, it's definitely, it, it definitely I've taken quite a lot from, from somebody who's had these heart problems. In terms of resilience, that's a really good example I was doing a foreign office course once about resilience. And I think I kind of somehow, that was when I thought, gosh, yeah, that's probably where a lot of what I think of my resilience has come from. It's partly literally dealing with pain, um, but also dealing with um, the hospital system and the kind of scariness of any hospital system. For me, I'm terrified when I walk into a hospital, I think because of, because of my childhood experience. So just having to learn to deal with that and my reaction to it um, and to decide I'm going I'm to proactively manage my health and I'm going to take control of my health and my physical problems. Um, all that are things that bleed into other parts of my life in a positive way. And so that's, that's what I try and take from it rather than being a bit miserable, as I sometimes am, that, God, I wish I had a heart that just worked like other right, people's because right. um, it's really frustrating. Um, to try and try and put a positive spin on it and think of all the, the the positive things that having to deal with those difficulties has given me so now you know if I go to the hospital for an appointment I will often try and post it on on Twitter right. and that's partly to say because I think sometimes when you look at people sometimes when you look at me and you think oh no there's Harriet she's got this great job and she's got this great life and I want people to know actually yeah there's but there's lots of difficulties as well you know the stuff that you don't see on social media you see this glamorous picture of me at a cocktail party you don't see me in the waiting room yeah. NHS waiting room with a with kind of you know little stickers on me waiting to get my heart checked where I'm actually quite scared and worried so it's one of the reasons to sort of dilute that social media. You know, everybody's perfect on social media. Um, it's also to get support. When I when I posted about having an ablation, which is where they burn bits of your heart to try and correct the electrical malfunction, um, somebody who was in the foreign office said to me, wow, I didn't know you just had an ablation. I'm going to have one myself in a few weeks' time. It would be really nice to learn about your experience. So I think finding fellow people who understand you as well by talking more about what's happening is is really important yeah yeah Th thanks for thanks for sharing that it, I, I guess it, it makes all of us um, more empathetic as well to some of these uh, challenges that may not not be not be visible um 
I, I grew up with um, a father who who, uh, who had ca cancer, and we we and it 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 it, it um, he 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 had to he he lived with it for for twenty twenty years, and what, what we found is um, uh, pe people who were not um, uh, ill themselves or had no connection with that struggled to to um, to deal with somebody who's ill over a very long term or had a health issue over a very long term. They they they, they stopped asking how are you how are you doing because the answer is always oh. We've we've had a hospital visit, or uh, I'm struggling with uh, with the next treatment, or or I'm worried about <laughs> this or that. So so it, it felt we felt that the the circle of people who were close to us was was uh, was dramatically shrinking <laughs> as the as time time went on. Yeah. yeah, I can understand that. And do you think do you think that also what what did you take from that experience? How do you think that has coloured you positively or otherwise from that childhood experience? To me, it's it's changed me. I think it's changed me in that, like I think, today um, the uh, there is a much more open space. I think for for sharing uh, struggles, and I, I think what happens is is what what you describe, where where you connect with with people who are facing similar challenges and can therefore relate, um, and not not to expect uh necessarily understanding from 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 from. from um, I mean, there's something very unique to have a. Um, a health condition over the very long term uh, and and very few people can relate to that unless they've had it themselves i think so so i think the lessons i, I take is to to find support among people who can really uh, empathize and really understand um and 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 not not expect more from uh, from uh, from others yeah yeah, I think sometimes they put it on the person to like, if only you would just get better, it would be a lot easier for me to have these conversations with you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I do. I mean, people are well-meaning, but I absolutely get that. You know, is your, is your heart better now? And I say, well, it's, it's better from the thing that I had last week, but I'm still managing this on a, yeah, yeah. you know, on an ongoing basis. But that's kind of a boring answer when what people want is, yay, it's solved. Exactly, Thank exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, maybe I, I could uh, I could ask you to to, uh, to 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 share a bit about Trinidad and the upcoming carnival. Um, oh. Yes, because we haven't spoken much about Trinidad. I think most of our listeners will not be familiar with it, and there's something really really uh, great coming up, uh, which which was cancelled for the last two years because of COVID, but 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 it's happening again. I'd, I'd love if you could share a little bit about that and how you're looking forward to it. Yeah, well, I'll do my best. I mean, if anybody's listening who is from Trinidad and Tobago, you will be much better qualified than me to talk <laughs> you, about Carnival. And that person would be welcome on this podcast to share about <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so, I mean, Trinidad and Tobago is, uh, is in the Caribbean. It's probably about 10 kilometers from Venezuela. You know, it's really close to South America. And so there's, uh, there's a lot of what some people might, see as a lot more of those kind of um carnival the carnival vibes are really south you know the, the, that sort of south american vibe although trinidad would 100 percent say this is where carnival started you know and actually it started as a rebellion against colonialism you know carnival is a uh, is a protest 
Uh, and I quite like that about the origins of carnival because it makes it a little bit edgy and a little bit dangerous, which is exactly, I think, where carnival should be. Um, uh, and there's all sorts of traditional characters that people dress up as like robber barons, for example, you get blue devils, people who are completely blue all over, absolutely terrifying, <laughs> you know, like pro- properly like with spears and sticks. Um, and there's all these what, kind of like fairy, fairy tales, fairy stories connected to all these characters. Um, and so there's all that at the base of Carnival. And then on top of that, there's the tiny bikinis and the even, you know, tiny thongs and feathers. <laughs> um, but I think what, what people say is that every body type is, uh, is welcome in Carnival. And it really is an inclusive fet. You know? um, and so all the different ethnicities in Trinidad and Tobago, and it is a real melting pot of ethnicities, are warmly embraced for Carnival. Um, there's... A lot of drinking, there's a lot of dancing, um, soca music sort of infuses all of all of carnival. It starts with a thing called juve, which is from okay. the French like juver, like opening. Um, and and you, you leave at like 3 a.m. to start this party and they throw oil and paint. Um, and again, there's kind of I think there's kind of an Indian element there to that to that particular <laughs> event as well. Um, and then you watch the sun come up with music and, um, and just color and it just sounds amazing. I can't wait to do that. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, um, it's very well organized. I think, I mean, you think it all moves like clockwork. You get these, these, um, trucks with music and food and toilets moving through the city and people choose to play mass, uh, with different bands. Um, and so basically kind of you choose your tribe. Um, which is a kind of, uh, you know, a, a company, I suppose, but it's more than that. It's like an identity. It's like a, a vibe that you say, I'm going to go with that particular group to play mass. Um, and it sounds it just incredible, magical. And people say it's like nowhere else in the world. <laughs> um, but, it, but it is nonstop partying for, well, I mean, two and, a, two and a half days at least. But the whole run up from Christmas onwards, people tell me there's fets or parties <laughs> Every day of the week in the run-up wow. to, to Carnival, it's incredible. You'll be you'll be in country for that. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't I wouldn't miss it. <laughs> you would miss it. <laughs> Great, Harriet. I've I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'd I'd like to suggest to 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 uh, as a way to wrap up our conversation to to ask you a, a few um, quick fire quick fire mm. questions. And the, the first one is, um, what would be a, a, a recent read, article, or book that has changed you or uh, or changed the way you see the world? So I'm going to choose um, a book um, that I that I read a few months back called The Order of Time by Carlo Rovelli. I don't know if you've heard of this. Mm. No, I haven't um, actually. So it, it's 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 a, a bestseller apparently. Um, I, re- I read a review for it in the Guardian and then bought it. So this is a, a quantum physicist, an Italian quantum physicist, who has written this book about time. It's I mean, it's quite a difficult read, but it's 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 meant to be read, written for the masses. But it's but essentially, it talks about how time now with the quantum physics, time kind of doesn't really exist anymore. What, there's no such thing as now because now is just meaningless when you think of the universe. Um, and what you know, the, the, our experience of time is really inadequate as to what time really is um and so that really has kind of opened my eyes I do feel I do feel like 
it's almost a religious experience in all seriousness reading this book because it it's it sort of talks about the past and the and the future not being the linear um experience that as a human being we've sort of maybe traditionally felt like it was um and so uh, this is just i just kind of feel like the universe is so vast i mean it is the universe is so vast and the potentiality within the universe of things being one thing but also the other which is what quantum physics essentially you know the the atoms are both in one place and in the other at the same time um so that's really kind of it just i i'm reading it twice actually i'm I'm actually halfway through reading it for the second time um partly to try and understand it but also to try and kind of fix my world view a bit more uh because i'm somebody who i'm I really worry about growing old and dying, right? Mm. I just kind of think like for me, there's a finality to it. I don't, I'm not religious. Um, And so I kind of think, God, our life is so short and it's over in a flash. And I find that quite alarming. Mm. This book is kind of, I feel like it's teaching me that this particular moment in time that I'm perceiving, it could pop up again in 2000 years time. I could pop up as this individual in, in 2000 years time, because the, uh, all the atoms have just come together again. And the, the the probability is there that that could happen. And I kind of find that just crazy yeah. and exciting yeah. at the same time. So yeah. that has changed my perspective on the world. Th- thank you so much for sharing. And I, th- I think we share sim- similar um, existential questions as well on, on the uh, uh, fle- fleetingness of, 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 of life. And th- there's if, if you're into that kind of... Uh, reflections i can suggest another follow-up book which i've just finished because it's ian mcgilchrist's um the matter with things uh so it's the same it, it, for me it had the same kind of mind-opening uh effect but but about matter and how matter doesn't exist as this thing that we imagine oh, that uh, so now that you've done t- time <laughs> the next one would be matter uh so it's a british uh psychiatrist and, and philosopher uh it's, it's a big read but um uh, worth it <laughs> and then ne- next question would be what what habit or hack uh, has improved your life right so i was going to say brewing kombucha but i think that's probably a bit niche but very good <laughs> very good for your gut yeah. bacteria i can i can <laughs> call me up and and I'll tell you how to brew your own kombucha but actually I think more importantly is I have learned in the last few years about how to say no Mm. which has transformed my life Um, you don't have to have an excuse you don't have to say why you're saying no you're just saying no and that's it and you can say it really (laughs) nicely and nobody needs to get upset nobody really cares you know, this thing about agonizing about whether to go to somebody's party or not, or whether to go to an event or whether to do something that somebody obviously really wants you to do, but you really, really don't want to do it. I think in the past, I was really much more of a people pleaser. And I was much more somebody to say, yes, of course. Oh, yeah, you want me to do that. Me doing that will make you happy. And it'll be very convenient for you. Absolutely. And then I'll spend, you know, the next few weeks, God, why did I say I'd do that thing? And now I'm like, no, no, thank you so much for asking me. I'm really no. touched. And, um, you know, maybe, it, you know, another time I would have loved to do it, but I just can't do it. Yeah. yeah. And then I move on. Um, and that I'm, is so freeing. I'm doubly glad that you uh, said yes to recording this podcast, actually. Now. 
<laughs> and maybe a last one would be what is a, a place that has um, a special significance uh, to you and, and, and why? I know this is a this is a really interesting question because I'm somebody who's moved around the world a lot yeah. <laughs> and I kind of move on every every four years and I sort of have to be able to move on and not look back and not think oh I yearn for this place and when I sort of searched searched my soul um, as to where my favorite <laughs> place was I actually come up with being by the sea regardless mm. of where that might be. Um, whenever I am by the sea, I find it really hard to tear myself away. You know, if I'm with somebody and they say, I'll say, we're going five minutes and I'm just, oh, just a couple more minutes. I just want to watch <laughs> some more waves. And those waves are smashing against the rocks really beautifully. Wow. I do find it really hard. And I just, I could just sit there. I find it mesmerizing. I find it so soothing, whether it's a calm sea or an angry sea. I just love it. Um, and I've then whether that's in North Yorkshire or the Caribbean or the Atlantic, I've sat there and just just been thrilled by the sea. So I've never I've never like lived by the sea. Like I've never been within a few minutes walk of the sea. And that's that's the sort of ambition for me, I think. I think that would be really incredible. Again, wherever in the world it was. <laughs> yeah, that's my place. Great great thank you very much harriet I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation is there anything else you wanted to to say or to to share as as we uh, as we as we close this episode well i think just to say thank you for inviting me on the podcast i doing gmap was a really interesting part of my life again not something that i ever necessarily thought i would do but i love the camaraderie that comes with being a gmapper there's a sense of again sort of identity and the and that doesn't really exist so much in the UK mm. certainly not you know the university that I went to there's there's not that sense of we'll help each other and we'll support each other and we'll we, we want to find out more about each other and I love that about GMAP um, and so I'm really I'm really pleased that you're doing something that allows yet more connections between GMAPers and, and I guess I would just say anybody listening to this um, who please do connect with me on LinkedIn um, I really, I really want to be part of this community of, of G mappers, uh, and I will be. Uh, I'm a, I'm a fan now of your podcast, so I'm really looking <laughs> forward to to hearing other people and their experiences. Um, Great. So yeah, thank you, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you, thank you, Harriet. Thanks for listening. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to be the first to know when new episodes come out.